All right, good morning. At this time, our children can be dismissed to go upstairs with Mackenzie and Aaron. If you have kids ages four to six, um, they are welcome to join Aaron and Mackenzie. I always get that wrong for some reason. Um, all right, Aaron, what do you got studying today? Okay. Great. You guys can go on up whenever you're ready. Uh, Let's pray for our kids as they leave. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for our children. We thank you for all just the abundance of children you have brought to Redeemer Church. And God, I pray that as they um, go upstairs, as they hear your word taught and read, as they hear the story about how you provided for your people in the middle of the desert, water, something only you can do. God, I pray that they would see that they are in need of that same provision. They are in need of a Savior to care for them, to love them, the one who has died for them, Jesus. God, I pray they would turn their hearts to Christ and that today, what they hear today, would be a means to that end. God, we thank you for our kids and we pray now that you would give light to our eyes as well. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a picture of my son, Silas. He just went upstairs. He's four years old. This was taken just last month uh, when we were at down in southern Illinois for the 4th of July weekend. As you can see, he's standing on a dock looking out into a lake, the Lake of Egypt. Um, What you can't see or can't really tell from this picture, unless maybe you've had kids, um, he's paralyzed with fear. (laughs) He, uh, you can see his, his little toes kind of creeping off the edge there. Uh, that's about as far as he got to actually jumping off into the water by himself. Now, if I was standing there, he would jump into my arms, no problem. Um, but so just a few moments before this photo was taken, and I asked Silas to tell the story, by the way, and show the picture, uh, so I have his permission to tell the story. Um, he was up on the shore, away from the dock, away from the water, and he was watching his cousins out in the water, and they're jumping off the dock, swimming around, having a blast, having a great time, and so he's putting his life jacket on, and he's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this, I'm going to jump in the water, I can't wait. He runs out onto the dock, dead stop, fear, right? Immediately, fear. He stood there at least 10 minutes. And we're just trying to give him some encouragement and give him a little nudge, you know, go ahead, jump in. Um, But he never did. He's paralyzed with fear. Um, We've all been there, right? Fear can paralyze us. I'm sure we've all had experiences like this, whether it's a physical experience or you're just afraid to do something physical, or perhaps you experience paralyzing fear when it comes to sharing your faith. There's no doubt that Christians are called to make disciples of every nation. And this means that we must take the message of Christ to people that may not want to hear it. This can be a very difficult task for us. Think about this. Maybe we've just attended a great conference or a camp, and we come back home, and we're excited, we're motivated, we're at the, we're at the, the edge, or we're, we're, we're up on the shore, right? We're sort of away from the world. We, we, we go to these conferences, we hear these sermons about 
taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we're so excited, we're so motivated. We put our life jacket on, we run out onto the dock, and we stop because we're paralyzed with fear. We realize we can't even muster up the courage to take the gospel to the people living right next door to us. How would we take it to anywhere across the world? Or maybe you've had an experience like me many times when an opportunity, we're just waiting for the right opportunity, right, to, to just come to us where the stars are aligned and everything is just perfect. There's this gospel opportunity laid right in our lap, and still that fear is there. I just can't take the step of actually opening my mouth, sharing the good news of Christ. So why are we so afraid? Where does this fear come from? Well, I think there can be several answers, but usually there are probably two reasons we are oftentimes afraid to talk to others about Christ. First, at some level, we have forgotten the beauty and glory of the gospel. We will not share the gospel if it is not glorious to us. It will not be glorious to us if we have had our hearts set on the things of the world and failed to remind ourselves of our own sinful condition, our need for a Savior, and the fact that Christ is that Savior. And we must turn to Him in faith. So first, we don't share our faith, or we're scared to share our faith, because we have forgotten the gospel in some sense ourselves. But the second reason I think we become paralyzed with fear is because we really believe that the results of sharing the gospel are dependent upon us. We have bought into the lie that says, what if I say something wrong? Or what if I can't answer their questions? What will they think of of me if I talk to them about sin? Will this ruin my relationship? Will they make fun of me? Will they think less of me? All of these questions and doubts stem from the misunderstanding that their response is somehow dependent upon me. So it's no wonder we're afraid and become paralyzed. It's, it's no wonder when we approach evangelism as something that is dependent upon us and we know we are weak, we know we are helpless, we know we don't feel qualified to talk about Christ, then yes, we will be very afraid. But... What if the results of sharing the gospel are not actually dependent upon us? What if all of those questions and doubts are actually invalid? What if all our fears are based on something that's not even true in the first place? Let's go back to Silas on the dock. What if Silas was totally convinced that nothing bad was going to happen to him if he jumped into the water? What if he knew beyond a doubt that I would be there to catch him or that his swimming abilities were good enough or that the water wasn't very deep at all? If he really believed those things, then he'd jump in in a heartbeat without hesitation. In the same way, what we believe about the results of evangelism will dictate our willingness to jump in. So today, my hope is that we will see that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we can proclaim the gospel without fear. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we can proclaim the gospel 
without fear. Some of you might already be saying, okay, I get it. The results of my evangelism are not up to me, they're up to God. But what does that look like, right? What is, going, what is God doing when I share the gospel? What's the relationship between the words that I say and the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of my neighbors and my friends and my family? Does the Bible tell us anything about how the Bible or how the Word of God and the Spirit of God work together to change hearts? Yes, I think it does. Turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 26. That's page 902 in the chair Bibles, if you have a chair Bible. John 15, verse 26. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He's explaining to them how he's, a, he's eventually going to go away. Okay? He's going to leave them. This is what he says, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And remember, we're asking the question, what is the relationship between the Word of God and the the Spirit of God, the Word that we proclaim, the message that we tell people, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And what does this tell us about our fear? How does this help us deal with our fear? First, I want us to understand that the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. Look with me at John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now skip down to chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, we have to remember that these words were spoken by Jesus to his disciples. He is telling them he is about to be taken away, he's about to be crucified, resurrected, and he's going to ascend into heaven. The disciples don't understand these things yet, but they will when they happen. Jesus says that after his ascension into heaven, he will send the Holy Spirit back to them. We read about the Holy Spirit coming to the disciples in Acts chapter 2. Remember, the, the disciples are in the upper room. They're afraid, they're praying, and then the Holy Spirit descends upon them. There's tongues of fire. Remember Acts chapter 2. So according to Jesus, after the Spirit comes, He will declare to the disciples a message. Now, what is this message? Look at chapter 16, verse 14. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we see there is a chain of communication between the three persons of the Trinity. The Father has a message. He has given this message to the Son because Jesus says, all that the Father has belongs to the Son. And after the Son is taken up into heaven, the Holy Spirit will take the Son's message and declare it to the disciples, who will then declare it to the world. Now, this is helpful for us if the apostles are still alive. They could just come here to Redeemer Church and tell us the message they have received from the Holy Spirit who received it from Jesus, who received it from God the Father, right? After all, chapter 15, verse 27 says, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Have we been with Jesus from the beginning? No. This is his disciples, right? The problem is they're dead, right? How is this message supposed to be handed down to us? It's certainly clear that Jesus meant for his message his word to be passed on to the disciples and to Christians beyond them. But how was this supposed to happen? Of course, we know we are holding the answer in our hands, right? Because in fact, the apostles, in one sense, are here with us. We have their very words, ancient words, words inspired by the very Spirit of God. We see in this passage that this was the plan of God before the apostles were even aware of it. Jesus is commissioning them. He's choosing them to take His message and proclaim it. And somewhere along in that process of proclamation, it would get written down so that the message of Christ could survive through the ages and get transmitted and transmitted and transmitted all the way down to us. But does the Bible give us any more information 
about this process. How did this happen? Yes, it does. So if you want to hold your finger there in John 16, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read another passage that deals with this issue directly. Second Peter 1, starting in verse 16, says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Peter's talking about the transfiguration, okay? We could read about this in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. He goes on, he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So according to Peter, Scripture is born, the Word of God is born when the Holy Spirit carries the human author along so that the human author writes exactly what he wants to write, and at the same time, he writes exactly what God wants him to write. This is called inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. We also know from the book of 2 Timothy that the words of Scripture have been breathed out by God. He breathed them out. They are God's words given to His apostles to be passed down through subsequent generations. And this is how we ended up with the text before us. That is, after 2,000 years of copying and copying and copying and translating. Now, what does this have to do with our evangelism? This seems like it might be just some remote doctrine about our Bibles, why we believe the Bible, but it has very specific application for us as we think about our evangelism. Since the words of the Bible have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can be certain that God will use them to accomplish His purpose. If you turn back to John 16, our text, and look at verse 13 and 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. You see, the words of Scripture are invested with the authority of Christ. They declare what is to come, and they point to Jesus. They glorify Jesus. This is why we have confidence in these words. These pages of Scripture are not simply ancient literature to be studied and analyzed like Plato's Symposium or Homer's Iliad. They are the very words of God. 
According to Isaiah 55, the word of God will not return to him void. It will accomplish the purpose he has set for it. And it will succeed in the way that he desires. Guys, we can be certain. These words have been inspired by God for his purposes. Let's take confidence in that today. Some of you might be saying, okay, I'm with you. The Holy Spirit inspired the words of Scripture. But then why do some people not believe, right? If they're invested with the authority and the power of Christ, then we should just go around reading the Bible and people's hearts would be converted, right? Why do some people not believe? Some people actually read the Bible to reject it or scoff at it or even ridicule it. This was the case in my philosophy class at John A. Logan College um, when I was uh, living in southern Illinois. I took a, a philosophy class, and then I took another class with the same professor, an ethics class. He uh, was an atheist. He was the president of the Atheist and Agnostics Club at that community college, and um, he had a Bible in his class, and he would open it, and he would read passages from the Bible. He actually had an NIV study Bible, which I'm thinking, if you're just going to make fun of the Bible, why would you spend, you know, $50 on a study Bible? But maybe it was a gift. I don't know. Um, but he would just read passages, and then he would just ridicule it. He would mock the Bible. He would mock Christians in the class. He would scream and shout over you if you tried to argue with him. It was really fun. Uh, it was a really great class. Um, uh, I kind of wish I could go back and take it again. But, um, but anyway, so if, if these are the words of God, then why wasn't he just immediately converted, right? When he w- read the words, he didn't believe it. Why is that? Look in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. We see that the Holy Spirit illumines the Word of God. The Holy Spirit illumines the Word of God. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, this passage is very applicable to us because Jesus is trying to help them deal with the fear of losing him and the fear that they are going to face uh, through persecution. When he leaves, they're going to proclaim the gospel and they're going to get kicked out of the synagogues. Oh, and they're also, some of them are going to die. They're going to be killed. So Jesus is helping them. He's saying, you have my spirit, but here he's making a distinction in these verses between his disciples and other people who will reject their words and even seek to kill them. Now, this should cause us to ask the same question I asked about my atheist professor. Why is it that when the the apostles preached the gospel, some people believed, but other people killed them? Why do some believe? Why is it that my professor could read the same words as me and yet ridicule and scoff at them? Jesus provides an answer. It's because they do not know the Father or the Son. 
Look down in verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Notice that word, He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit is the one that brings guidance. The Spirit is the one that leads us into the truth. Let's flip back just uh, one chapter to chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit in chapters 14, 15, and 16, and so there's a lot here. 14, verse 26 says this, but the Helper The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit, we see, is the one who guides and teaches the disciples in this truth. He doesn't just declare the message of Christ. He actually teaches it. He provides understanding This guidance, this understanding that the Spirit provides is called illumination. The disciples, you see, were not robots just mechanically preaching or writing the words of the Holy Spirit. No, they preached and they wrote what their hearts understood to be true. They loved the truths they proclaimed because the Holy Spirit opened their spiritual eyes to see the truth and beauty of the message of Christ, and He does the same thing for us today. Those who belong to Jesus know the Holy Spirit's voice, and they understand His words. That doesn't mean we all understand everything at the same time. This, This is not at all saying that we can just open our Bibles and whatever we want to believe about a particular passage, we believe it because, hey, I have the Holy Spirit, right? Because that could lead to chaos and cults, right? That's how cults get started. We want to avoid cults, right? We don't want to start cults. So what I'm saying, though, is that through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we can understand God's Word. He gives us understanding, but not only understanding the words on the pages, but He illumines our minds and our hearts so that we love it, we believe it, we trust it. Now, do we see this anywhere else in Scripture? Does the way we understand Scripture really depend on whether we belong to Jesus? Well, Romans 8 Verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8 say this, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, you have your mind set on the flesh. So those people Jesus mentioned in the beginning of John 16, those that will throw the disciples out of the synagogues and even kill them, their minds are set on the flesh. They are hostile towards God's word because they are in the flesh. They have not been given eyes to see. 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 14, addresses this even more specifically. Paul Paul writes this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. 
He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A person does not naturally understand spiritual truths because understanding must be imparted by the Spirit of God. If we're going to understand spiritual things, that understanding must come from the Spirit of God. Uh, There's a quote I have here from J.I. Packer. It'll be up on the screen. Um, J.I. Packer writes this about illumination. I thought this was just a really uh, clear explanation of what illumination is. Illumination is a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text as heard and read and as explained by teachers and writers. Sin in our mental and moral system clouds our minds and wills so that we miss and resist the force of Scripture. God seems to us remote to the point of unreality, and in the face of God's truth, we are dull and apathetic. The Spirit, however, opens and unveils our minds and attunes our hearts so that we understand. As by inspiration, He provided Scripture truth for us, so now by illumination, He interprets it to us. Illumination is thus the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. Now, what does the doctrine of illumination have to do with us sharing our faith? First, it should give hope to us because we have been given the spirit of truth. The doctrine of the, of the illumination of the spirit gives us great hope because we can be sure that He will give us understanding into the Word of God. We don't have to be afraid of how to share the gospel because we have already been given the words to say right here. He will provide understanding. But the second way that we can apply this truth to us is that we should seek help in community. Like I said before, this does not mean that all we need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit, and any conclusion we come to must be from God, right? No. That's how churches become divided and cults are started. We need each other. God teaches us, opens our eyes to His Word as we hear it and study it within the context of a local church. So let's pour over God's Word together and see what He says to us as His people. This is something that we do together, guys. The Holy Spirit brings illumination through a number of different avenues. As we have discussions with one another, as we listen to sermons, as we read books, as we live in community with one another, the illumination of the Spirit is always happening. When we turn to God's Word, He brings more and more understanding. And we can be confident that we can understand God's Word rightly. But beyond that, we also love God's Word. We want it. We desire it. We want others to know it too. So, what we've seen so far is that the Holy Spirit has inspired the Word of God and that He illumines the Word of God. But there is a missing component that we cannot overlook. How does a person move from unbelief to belief? 
Because you see, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is a gift that God gives believers. I can't expect my atheist professor to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to understand the words of Scripture. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit, right? He's not going to believe it. He's not going to love the Word of God. So what has to happen? Something has to change, right? How does it change? What, what has to take place in my professor so that he begins to love the Word of God? When you sit down with your unbelieving friends or family, they will not understand the things of God because they do not have the Holy Spirit. Something else must take place first. The heart must be regenerated. The Holy Spirit regenerates the heart through the Word of God. Look with me in chapter 16, starting at verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus says he's going to return to the Father. He knows his disciples are sorrowful. He cares about them. He wants to give them comfort. And what's amazing is that he says it's actually better for him to go away, for him to leave them, Why? So that he can send the Holy Spirit. You ever thought about that? You ever find yourself thinking, man, if Jesus was just here, he would deal with this issue. He would have all the answers, right? Jesus says, it's actually better for me. It's it's actually better for you if I go. Why is that? Because he sends his Spirit. His Spirit lives within us each one of us. We have the understanding. We have the mind of Christ. This is meant to give them great comfort. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then Jesus gives more detail about what sin, righteousness, and judgment mean. But before we get into that, before we get into sin, righteousness, and judgment, we have to look at this word convict. What does this word mean? Jesus says the Holy Spirit is coming to convict the world. This word convict is very important because it conveys an element of persuasion or convincing and even overcoming resistance. Think about how we use the word convict in our own context. Say you're sitting in a sermon at some point, which you are sitting in a sermon. um, Say you're sitting in a different sermon. um, And maybe at some point in the sermon, the preacher begins talking about bitterness or and how harboring bitterness can destroy relationships within the church and within our families. Throughout the course of the sermon, you become aware that you have been harboring bitterness towards someone in your own family. When you leave that sermon, someone asks you, hey, 
What's God been teaching you? Or what did God show you in that sermon? What's going to be your response? You might hear something like this. Well, I was actually really convicted, really convicted by my bitterness towards my family. Now, what do you mean when you say you're really convicted? What we mean is that we have been convinced that we are in sin in this particular area, right? We've been convinced. You can see how the word convict and convince has the same root, the same idea, right? When perhaps we weren't even aware of that bitterness, the Holy Spirit convinced us of it by revealing it to us and persuading us of its reality and seriousness. So when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is coming into the world to bring conviction, what he means is that he is coming in order to convince the world of these things. He will persuade people of these realities of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the Spirit does not just reveal truth. The Spirit doesn't just put truth on a table, right, and say, here it is. He also transforms the heart to see truth as true, and He convinces the heart to receive the truth by faith. This is called regeneration. The Holy Spirit creates new life by regenerating our dead hearts through the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's read on and let's see what this looks like. What does the sin, righteousness, and judgment mean? First, the Holy Spirit, in verse 9, comes to convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. When people encounter the message of Christ and when the Spirit of God so chooses, He actually convinces people of their own sin. Perhaps they've never given any thought to their sin. Perhaps they're moral relativists and don't even think that sin really exists. Whatever the state of their heart is, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, persuades them that they are sinners and they have broken God's law. Let me ask you, what do you think of your own sin? Are you convinced of the seriousness of your own sin and your guilt before God? Have you contemplated the fact that you have rebelled against a holy God? And this holy God cannot just overlook your sin. He's actually very angry with you. And what you deserve from Him is death and destruction. This is the conviction that Jesus is talking about. This is what the Spirit does. He convinces us. He shows us, He reveals to us the fact that we are sinners. But praise God, that's not the whole story. Look at verse 10. Second, the Holy Spirit brings conviction of righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father and His disciples will see Him no more. This verse might seem a bit strange. Um, I had a hard time kind of putting it together. What's Jesus saying? Essentially, what Jesus means is that when He ascends to the Father, He will once and for all be shown to be righteous. His bodily work on earth will be complete. His true nature will be revealed for all to see. 
uh, his ascension and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit will reveal that he was who he said he was. When Jesus leaves earth, his Holy Spirit will come and continue the work he started. And he will point back to Jesus, point back to Christ. And part of that work is to convince people that Jesus is the righteous one. He's going away. Disciples will see him no more, but the Spirit will point back and he will say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the righteous one. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm going away. The Spirit's going to come. He's going to point back to me. He's going to say, look to me. Look to me. Look to me. I am the righteous one. I am the righteous one. This is what the Spirit does. And isn't this what our faith is as well. Our sin is revealed to us. We are convinced that we are sinners. And then we are convinced that Jesus is the righteous one. I have to look to Jesus. I have to look to him. We would never come to that understanding on our own. How does that happen? The Spirit persuades us. The Spirit convicts us, convinces us of this truth. Jesus is the righteous one. So the Holy Spirit actually convinces us of our sin and convinces us of the righteousness of Christ and convinces us that we must look to Jesus for salvation. This is all part of regeneration. But I ask you, what about you? How do you view Christ? Do you see him as the righteous one? The one that you must run to in order to escape God's wrath? Do you see him as the one who came to die on a cross and in his death, he is the one who took on your sin so that you would not be judged for it? And do you see his righteousness, his perfect life as something that you need, something you must have in order to be made right with God? When you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God no longer sees you in His anger. You are to Him as a son or a daughter. He looks on you with favor and blessing. He longs to be good to you because you belong to Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe Have you been convinced that Jesus is the righteous one? Look in verse 11. Third, the Holy Spirit will convince the world of judgment because the ruler of this world, who is Satan, is judged. This means that the continuing work of the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension, is the ongoing proof that Satan has been judged and will finally, once and for all, be defeated. But the judgment of Satan is not the end of God's judgment. Because not only will Satan be judged, so will each one of us. Judgment starts with Satan, but it ends with us. The third part of the Spirit's work in regeneration is to convince people of the reality of judgment. God will hold you accountable for your sin. When you die, 
You will stand before him and give an account of your life. If you have trusted in your own good works to earn God's favor, then you will perish for all eternity. That is the reality of judgment. If that seems ludicrous, if that seems unjust or archaic or absurd to you, then my prayer today is that right now, you would be convinced. Right now, you would be convinced of the reality of judgment. Guys, judgment is coming. Have you been convinced of that? Our prayer is that you would turn from your sin and trust Christ for eternal life. He is the righteous one. So, what have we seen? We've seen that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we can proclaim the gospel without fear. Church, we're free. We have nothing to fear. The Holy Spirit inspired these words. He will not let his word return void. It will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. The Holy Spirit illumines our hearts to understand it rightly. And we do that in community. We go to our brothers and sisters for help with this. We can teach and apply His Word to the hearts of our friends and neighbors. And the results belong to the Holy Spirit. He is the one who brings regeneration. He brings regeneration by convincing people, not you, You don't convince people. The Holy Spirit convinces people that they are sinners, that Jesus is righteous, and that judgment is coming. The results are not up to us. So what does this mean? I want to leave us with two specific challenges today. First, we must be faithful with the Word of God. If you've noticed what I've said over and over, the Holy Spirit works in these ways through the Word of God, through the Word of God. This means that we must open our Bibles and we must open our mouths. We must bring the Word of God to the ears of the people. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Now, this can look all kinds of ways. We're going to be teaching a couple of classes in a few weeks on some very specific ways you can be engaging your friends and neighbors with the Bible. Maybe it means you're reading through a book of the Bible with an unbeliever. Maybe it means you're engaged in spiritual conversations with them, bringing truths of Scripture to bear on their lives. Either way, the Word of God must be present, must be present. We have to be faithful to bring the Word of God to the ears of the lost. Remember Paul's words from Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, but why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. What's Ephesians 6 say? The Word of God, which is the sword, no, the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. We wield the sword of the Spirit 
And when we do, the Spirit does His work. So first, we have to be faithful with the Word of God. We have to open our mouths. We have to proclaim the gospel. We have to engage with people. But second, we must pray. The Holy Spirit is the one that convinces. The Holy Spirit is the one that illumines. Let's be a church that persistently pleads with God for the souls of the lost. Since the work of the Spirit is entirely dependent on the Spirit, then my hope is that we would be a people who weep and plead and beg and cry out for the salvation of those around us. Let's do that together. Let's do that here. Let's do that in our community groups. Let's do that alone in in your bedroom, in your office, wherever. Let's do that with our kids. Let's let them see us cry out and pray and plead with God for the souls of our friends, our neighbors, the lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this you must do this. Father, we plead with you now that even now you would be convincing our hearts, convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Remind us, God, of the weighty, glorious truths of the gospel. I pray that it would change us so that we love your word And that we would unashamedly take it to a lost and dying world without fear. Because we know that you have inspired these words, you illumine these words, and you regenerate hearts. God, we thank you that you are the one who does this. We have confidence not in ourselves. Oh, so afraid when I have confidence in myself because I'm weak and helpless, but God, you are powerful and mighty. We look to you. Father, please do this work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.